0: great to be together to worship the Lord and be in His presence today. We're continuing in our series in Genesis. We'll be in chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. And uh, my name is Paul Buckley. I'm one of the pastors here. On most Sundays to lead us through the Word. So we'll be looking at this section of Scripture in our series in Genesis 2. Thank God for His Word. We live in a confused world that needs the truth. The goodness and beauty of God's design that we find in Genesis. Gender is something we'll talk about today. Gender is a significant area of confusion right now. The World Health Organization has the following definition. If you project this, gender refers to the characteristics of women, men, girls, and boys that are socially constructed. This includes norms, behaviors, and roles associated with being a woman, man, girl, or boy, as well as relationships with each other. As a social construct, gender varies from society to society and can change over time. Gender is hierarchical and produces inequalities that intersect with other social and economic inequalities. Gender-based discrimination intersects with other factors of discrimination, such as ethnicity, socioeconomic status, disability, age, geographic location, Gender identity and sexual orientation, among others. This is referred to as intersectionality. Gender interacts with with, but is different from sex, which refers to the different biological and physiological characteristics of females, males, and intersex persons, such as chromosomes, (coughs) hormones, and reproductive organs. Gender and sex are related to but different from gender identity. Gender identity refers to a person's deeply felt internal and individual experience of gender which may or may not correspond to the person's physiology or designated sex at birth." Unquote from the World Health Organization. Wikipedia has the following comments on gender. The concept of gender in the modern sense is a recent invention in human history. Before sexologist John Money and colleagues introduced the terminological distinction between biological sex and gender as a role in 1955, it was uncommon to use the word gender to refer to anything but grammatical categories, such as masculine, feminine uh, genders, and grammar. For example, in a bibliography of 12,000 references on marriage and family from 1900 to 1964, the term gender does not even emerge once. It was in the 1970s that feminist scholars adopted the term gender as a way of distinguishing socially constructed aspects of male-female differences, gender, from biologically determined aspects, sex. So apparently, the way I live out my sense of gender is malleable and not necessarily connected to whether I am actually male or female. Male and femaleness, therefore, are potentially irrelevant. I, by the way, know I'm talking about something controversial. And I welcome your questions afterwards. But I do think this is the clear logic of all this. This idea that your maleness or femaleness is potentially irrelevant is a radical notion and a source of great confusion. And this is the cultural water we all swim in. Before we think about the other people that need to hear this message and this truth, we need to think about ourselves. In our own confusion, we all live in some degree of confusion ourselves on gender and sex, and we all need to be rescued and redeemed by God Himself through His Word and His life. His Word is the place where we experience rescue, renewal, and revival. And Genesis is a wonderful book that helps us understand both our biological sex and how we live that out in our gender. As a man or a woman. And through this, it points to our only hope in all this is the good news of Jesus Christ. So we're going to dig in and look at God's Word this morning related to this topic. He was here in the Word before it ever became an issue in culture. Thank God for His Word. Let's pray and ask Him to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of your Word. We thank you for the goodness of your word and its ways. We thank you for the beauty and glory of your word. And I pray you'd help me on this topic, to clearly teach your word, to boldly and and sensitively proclaim it. And I pray for all of us to hear your word and to experience power to live in its truth. Our hope is not in our own ability to think this through, but in you, So come now, Holy Spirit, visit with us, teach us, build us up, and Lord, use us as beacons of of light, of love and truth in our culture. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone, I will make a helper fit for him. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. God's word from Genesis chapter 2. We've been looking at this chapter last week. We looked at the earlier section, and and I talked about this chapter really being a a zooming in on things that went on in chapter 1. So last week, we looked at the zooming in as the man was placed in the garden. We learned that mankind was made for a covenant relationship with God, depending on him, believing him, and obeying him for a life of blessing and purpose. This week, we learned that mankind was made in two complementary forms, to jointly, cooperatively image God and fulfill his mission for humanity. The truth in this section informs us about this and, and implies that we can only really know ourselves and our purpose when we know ourselves as male or female, as a team, corporately, cooperatively reflecting the image of God. So let's dig into this section and, and learn about this, that, that God has formed us in these two complementary forms to jointly together image God. This is zooming in on what goes in chapter 1, and I'm just going to walk through the section, starting in verse 18. Verse 18 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper suited for him. So previously, every time, every day that God makes something, how does it end? Well, before it says the evening, morning, whatever day, it says it was good, right? And then when day 6 he makes man... Making them male and female, as it says in chapter 1, it says it was very good. Now we have in chapter 2, a zooming in on that day, day 6, in particular the aspects of making mankind. And before he gets to the very good, he says something is not good. It's interesting. That should stand out to us. Something is not good. What possibly could be wrong with creation? What is not good here? What does it say? Man should be alone, right? So it's not good that man should be alone. There's only one human being currently in the storyline of chapter 2, and that's the man. Now, he's a man. He's a full man. He's not a, an intersex human or something that gets divided into uh, Everything about the chapter teaches us that. His name is Adam, just as it is later after Eve is made. He's called Adam, so uh, there's nothing here to say otherwise. So he's a man. He's a masculine man, uh, fully. And... And this man is alone. And it says it's not good for man to be alone. There's something wrong with this with a man being alone. He's meant for a helper suitable for him. Uh, We need to recognize that there is the reality in our fallen world that we often feel like it's better to be alone. Uh, Some of us, in, in the context of marriage, have the idea, like, I I actually don't want to be with a partner because of how it's gone. But the text here has a very different picture of this, that it's not good to be alone, and God has something much better. This aloneness is not a preferred state for Adam. And the whole thrust of this passage uh, leads us to this effusive celebration of the beauty and union and complementarity of the man and the woman. This is a a passage where there's celebration going on, particularly what Adam says. So it's very positive. We must recognize the reality that that because of our broken world, for many people, this idea of of it being not good to be alone might be contrary to what we feel. But God has something much better. Now mankind is made in the image of God, right? God says, we already have seen it, let us make man in our image, we saw earlier on, right? And we talked about the us there being the triune God, the, the word trinity, that word Trinity isn't in your Bible, but it, it's, a, it's a theological word to describe what the Bible teaches about God, that God is a, a tri-union. He's three in one. He's three persons in one being. We call Trinity. He is three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has always been three persons. He will always be three persons in one. God is never And so when he makes mankind, in his image, he doesn't make mankind to be alone. He makes mankind to be in union. Now first as a husband and wife, but next as a community of God's people. And then eternally in union with God himself as the God-man, Jesus Christ, and his church. We are made for community. We are made not to be alone. And so Adam is alone and he needs a helper fit for him. A helper fit for him. What's a helper? Someone who helps, right? right? Someone who comes alongside and assists, aids, supports, and resources another, right? That's what a helper is. The word helper says nothing about the... Superiority or inferiority of the person. It just means that other person has resources. The first person doesn't and needs. That's important to understand. As a matter of fact, the use of the word helper is commonly used in the context of speaking about God. Psalm 3320, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Psalm 124 8 our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And I could list many, many other scriptures that speak of God as the helper. The Holy Spirit is the helper. A helper is someone who has resources to help someone who doesn't have those resources. That's important to understand. The man, in this case, has needs. He has a need for companionship. He has a need for complementary gifts. He has resources that he needs in order to accomplish the mission that God calls him to. And what is that mission? To image God, to to represent God, to, to live as a king and priest on the earth, representing God and who he is. And so he needs a helper that would bring resources to accomplish this mission. It says it's a helper suitable for him, fit for him. The word actually uh, can be translated in many ways. It can be translated as alongside him, before him, in proximity to him, as a counterpart. I think the best word actually uh, is a compliment. He needs a helper who's a compliment to him. And that I don't mean someone who tells him what a great guy he is complement with an E in the middle, not an I, which comes from the word for complete. He needs a helper who will complete him, who will help him be a, a complete set. That's the title of the message. Think about complementary colors on the color wheel, right? complementary colors are different, but they go together really well. They, they match. Think of a complementary place setting, right? You have all the knives, forks, spoons, plates, bowls, glasses, Etc. so you can have a full-service dinner. It's a complete set, complementary setting. That's the idea here, is that, that this woman is to be a helper who is a complement, who makes a complete set, where neither part is truly whole without the other. That's the idea here, a helper suitable for him. Now, for centuries, even millennia, cultures have implicitly understood complementarity of the sexes. You must know, I must know, we must know. It's really only a recent phenomenon that there's confusion here at such a high level. It's something that was obvious to our, our ancestors and even just going back half a generation. Obvious to people. It's here in the scripture. It's clear this is a helper suitable for him. Different from him, but suitable for him. A complete set going together. Pastor Andrew Wilson in his uh, Gospel Coalition article points out the following. He says, given this theological framework, it should not be surprising that men and women are strikingly different in all sorts of ways that transcend cultural variations. Not only do these differences not disappear in purportedly uh, sex-neutral societies, there is evidence to suggest that some of them actually increase. Uh, he has all the things he's saying documented. You can read the reports from the uh, mainstream literature on them. As people are free to do what they actually want, the bell curves for men and women are centered in different places and not just for obvious physical traits, height, strength, hair, and so on, but for also for hormonal, psychological, and interpersonal traits. Men are typically more aggressive, competitive, fearless, likely to take risks, promiscuous and prone to violence, and testosterone is aligned with higher levels of confidence, sex drive, and status assertion. Women are, on average, more prone to neuroticism and agreeableness. Consequently, men are generally clustered at the upper and lower extremes of society. Men are are not just more likely to be very rich or very powerful, but also far more likely to be criminals, killers, homeless, excluded, or imprisoned. The stats all say this. Male groups are more characterized by sparring, fighting, power structures, and banter, while female groups are typically smaller, more indirect in confrontation, egalitarian in structure, verbally dexterous, and oriented around people rather than things. Gendered trends can be noticed before children are particularly aware of which sex they are. Um, And even in our closest animal relatives, the, the male preference for trucks over dolls extends to rhesus and vervet monkeys. Julia Turner, an editor of Slate commented recently that the boyishness of her twin sons had provided a significant challenge to her commitment to gender as a social construct, offering the fascinating remark that despite her egalitarian <coughs> bona fides, there's a there there. To which ethicist Christina Hoff Summers mischievously, mischief, there we go, responded in the Federalist, "Indeed, there is, and it takes a liberal arts degree not to see it." You can find that all online. So my question is, do you understand your sex slash gender as part of God's complementary design for humanity and for you? Do you see it as true? Is it true? Is it good? Even better, do you realize... And believe that when properly understood and practiced in Christ, it's even a beautiful thing that you are a man or a woman called to this complementary design. If you don't, let me encourage you strongly to dig deeper. You will need something more than following Christian convention or making concession to your Christian friends. To make your way in this new world of gender dysphoria and existential crisis. Dig deeper. Find out that it's not only true, but it's good. And it's not only good, but it's beautiful, attractive, glorious. We're called to be made for this complementary relationship. Well, moving on, verse 19. The next step is an interesting thing in this whole exploration of the helper suitable for Adam. It involves a diversion of sorts. In verse 19, the candidates for the complementary role are brought forward and they are what? Who are the candidates that are put before Adam? The animals. The birds. And God brings them before the man and whatever the man calls every living creature, that was its name. And in that section, you'll notice name and calling happen four different times. It's emphasizing this this role of mankind as the namer of the creatures. And therefore, mankind has prerogative over the creatures, presides over the creatures. So naming in scripture uh, is connected to headship, uh, reigning. So the man is in charge of the creatures here. He is the head of the creatures. He gets to name them. And they're all brought before the man, but there's no helper suitable for him. None of the animals can be that complimentary helper. They don't come close. Yes, for sure, domestic animals have their roles and all that, but none are this sort of helper suitable for Adam. And so in this story, at this point, verses 19 through 20, Adam is the dejected Prince Charming trying to find somebody that will fit in the glass slipper. And there's nobody. And that sets the stage for what happens next. This, the drama of what God does and how He, he brings this about and how He expresses the, uh, the meaning here and all that's going on. He puts the man into a deep sleep, performs a transplant of sorts, uh, extra, extracting part of his side, a, a rib, as it says in our translation, I mean a side. And He takes his side out and He builds it into a woman. And then presents her to the man. Now, how this happens is really important. It's part of the, the story. It's part of what happened, actually. But, it, but it's recorded for us to teach us about the nature of this complementary union. Adam was made from what material? What did we see last week? Dirt. Dirt, right? God made him from dirt. He breathed in him. Eve is made from what material? The rib, the side. Very different. She's not a separate being. She's not made out of her own pile of dirt like Adam was. She's taken from the man. That says a lot. Teaches us a lot about the nature of the relationship between the sexes. It goes beyond just marriage, by the way. It it indicates that this is a unique partnership. This is a binary complementary pair that are meant to be together. She is created out of the man. He he takes the rib or the side and and builds another type of human that's meant to be connected to the man. There's this strong connection. She's not made independently, separately. Though she is the image of God as well, indeed, right? Chapter 1, he makes us in the image of God male and female, he made them, right? Very clear. This is a, a... Human, fully human being, who as a fully human being images God, has all the rights and responsibilities of a full human, but she is made from the man. She's not made separately. And of course, this makes sense, right? Because if you're going to represent what the Lord is and be in the image of God, who is the Lord in terms of being? He's one being. We just recited the Nicene Creed, the Son and the Spirit. With the Father are God from God, light from light, true God from true God. One in being. And so humanity as male or female is one being. The, The woman being made out of the man makes that very clear. There's this union, inherent union and connection between male and female here. Just like the Trinity. We are imaging God in this reality, in this connectivity. Appropriately expressed in multiple forms. We'll talk about that. And it's to be something that is celebrated and recognized. We are to see it as true and good and beautiful because it images the very Trinity, God himself. And of course it's expressed most, well, immediately here in the text and primarily in the progression of things in the union of husband and wife. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. He will be joined to his wife. The two will become one in profound union that reflects the Godhead itself. Adam says something here that is poetry, Hebrew poetry, He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is is Adam celebrating. The woman is brought to him. He's been spending his time trying to find somebody that would fit in the slipper. And now this amazing being is brought to him. And he recognizes immediately what's going on. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is amazing. This helper suitable for me is fantastic. And she will be called woman, for she's taken out of a man. That's the first introduction of those words, by the way, in Scripture. It's a different word than Adam. In Hebrew, it's ish and isha, Just like in our language, it's man and woe man. And that language is highlighting the connection of them. The man and the woman. It's an amazing statement here. Uh, this this chapter, uh, chapter two, verse twenty-three. What Adam says for a few reasons. First, this is actually the first recorded human speech in history. Right here, written down. It's a second. It's a jubilant poem that celebrates this what's going on. But it's also a thirdly a pledge of the union. Adam's poetry here is not just that he's excited, not that he's Speaking for the first time, at least recorded, but he's actually it's it's like a wedding vow. He's saying, This is the gift, and we are one. We belong together. That's what's going on here. Now, they are husband and wife at this point. But this teaching, this section of scripture, these things are not just about the marriage union. These truths are meant to be expressed wherever men and women coexist. It's to be expressed in community, among God's people. Church is perhaps the next most profound place where masculinity and femininity, men and women, maleness and femaleness come together, distinct but in union. The church is not to be a place where men or women lose their distinctiveness as men or women. Our equality before God is not equivalency. A man doesn't equal a woman and never ever will. Yes, both are human, both bear God's image, both equally worthy as such before God, but they are forever, forever different. So in the church, men and women are to have different roles to express this, this design of God in our roles. Women and men both serve in diaconal roles, according to 1 Timothy 3, but if you look there, there's a difference in the, in the description, the qualifications. Slight difference there. Men and women are both to co-labor in the gospel, but they bring with them their masculinity or femininity. Men only are to serve as shepherds. Shepherds being synonymous with elders and overseers. They're men only are to be shepherds according to the explicit commands of the New Testament, but, but based on deeper truth that we see here in Genesis 2. Only men are to serve as shepherd leaders. Remember, Jesus, the chief shepherd, is a man. That is significant. God became a man. He became a human indeed. That relates to all of us. but He became a man version of humanity, not a woman version of humanity. Those are the only two options. And that is significant. It's not a concession to ancient Near Eastern culture that he had to be a man because he wouldn't get along. Otherwise, they wouldn't listen to him if he was a woman. Jesus came as a man in line with the design we hear in Genesis 2. And by the way, if you look at Jesus... He wasn't really interested in, in making concessions to ancient Near Eastern culture. He was very radical for his day, and, and his relationship with women was radical for the day. He had women who were followers, who were disciples of his, but none of the women were part of the 12 apostles. That's not a concession, that's a principle based on Genesis 2 and elsewhere. Only men were apostles. Only men are to be under-shepherds to reflect God's design in the masculine and feminine, to to reflect the chief shepherd being eternally a man and relating to his church as the feminine. That's the, the, the model, that is the example, that is the reason for the explicit commands of the New Testament and the limitation of shepherds to men. This is something that will endure eternally, long past the age, by the way, of gender confusion. Long past the age of gender confusion, men will remain men, women will remain women, Jesus will remain a man. The church will continue to be called his bride. This is his design. And it is not only true, but it is far better than anything our culture would manufacture. We must understand that. And it is glorious because it images God himself. The Son is not lesser than the Father. The Spirit is not lesser, inferior to the Son or the Father. They are all three fully God, fully equal, but different. So it is with man and woman together. Brett McCracken, again in a Gospel Coalition post, says the following, We need opposite sex relationships not only to complement and strengthen the other sex, but to learn more about our own sex. Karl Barth put it brilliantly, It is always in relation to their opposite that man and woman are what they are in themselves. We see the beauty of male-female complementarity not only in marriage, but also in how the two sexes interact in other relationships, whether in the church, workplace, community, or extended family. As Barth suggested, there is a sense in which the fullness of being male is realized only in relationship with female and vice versa. Marriage is a powerful way this fullness is manifest, but it is not the only way. Male and female are not fluid, easily interchangeable constructs we fashion from below. Rather, they represent the complementary unity from above, one that goes beyond bodily or even gendered polarity. It is a complementary unity that reflects... The structure of the water world and the God who created it. That's what's going on in this. God's design. And we only know ourselves truly in the context of our complementarity. God wasn't done. He wasn't able to say it's very good until He made both the man and the woman to walk in union together. We don't know ourselves apart from our maleness or femaleness in relationship to the opposite sex, before the Lord. It's vital and important. The fall into sin did not negate this, nor intensify it. It only distorted it. And we'll talk about that later when we get to chapter 3. And in Jesus' redemption that comes, He doesn't move us beyond the the design we see here, but He restores it. This is what's going on. One little side point quickly, uh, the woman is further described in chapter 3 as, uh, according to her name, Eve. Eve means life. She's the mother of all the living. and That's insightful for what femininity includes. It's part of the nature of womanhood to, to bring life, to bring life not only to children but to families and community and church. Their gifts of nurturing and caring and connecting and cultivating and thriving in relationships, are key in the life that God would bring. Just as Eve was named life, so every woman brings with her the gift of bringing life to what she does. Men don't typically excel in these qualities to the same degree. And so the life that comes from from women fully engaged in the church and in community and in their occupations is part of God's design. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not advocating traditional roles. I think that there are many roles that that a man or a woman could serve in. But no matter what role that you are serving in, you are always a man or a woman. And you bring with it God's design and these particular qualities of of men and and their responsibility uh, to lead. The man is the leader here. He's the one naming Eve. He's the one who's made first. He's leading here. And that's part of what he's called to do is to provide leadership, to provide initiative, provide protection and provision. But in relationship with the woman who comes alongside as the helper with her giftedness to make him fully successful. That we bring that to whatever we do and whatever occupation we pursue, we are to express our masculinity or femininity appropriately. We never can leave that behind. Do you believe these things? Are you embracing your masculinity or your femininity as a gift from God for good? Or are you trying to diminish the difference along with the rest of the culture? Let me tell you, it's a vain pursuit. It's empty. It's more than empty. It's damaging. It's more than damaging. It's defaming of God himself. I know those are strong words, but I believe they are appropriate and we must wake up to these truths and believe them and embrace them and celebrate them and pursue them we must move beyond trying to merely stay a step behind the decline of the culture regarding gender we must boldly and fully pursue and proclaim the true good and beautiful design of God in making us male or female yes let's avoid mere tradition Empty stereotypes, but also let us not dumb this down where it can't be seen and celebrated as God intends. So let me ask you, my brothers and sisters, is this your commitment? Is there anything you need to do to change from merely conceding that this may be true to actually celebrating and pursuing it? I think we're supposed to have the same enthusiasm that Adam had. He is excited about the fact that he's a man and she's a woman. We should be excited about God's design and pursue it with the same gust. Finally, verse 25. Verse 25 says uh, something very profound. It says that the man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. What is going on there? Is this about being naked or something? Is this a teaching on the, the best high state is the naked state? Or is there something else being said? What is this talking about? Well, later on in chapter 3, we're going to see this brought up again, both nakedness and shame. So this is connected here after the fall it says that the man realizes they realize that they're naked what does that mean? do you think that maybe like they just didn't catch it before like oh how'd i miss it i don't have anything on is that what's going on or is there something attached to that is there a meaning a deeper meaning in scripture there is and, and nudity in Scripture is connected to the idea of, of, of being vulnerable, being exposed, of, of being of being uh, in abject poverty. That's the that's the connection. And so the shame here is, is connected to sinfulness and, and, and the dirtiness of sin, but not the dirtiness of the human body. Let's not make that mistake. So there's actually nothing necessarily sinful about nudity. There's lots of teaching in Scripture that... Informs us about being clothed, so don't hear what I'm not saying. Um, but it's the, the, the things that it's pointing to that are most important here. You see, Adam and Eve, before they fell into sin, they felt covered. They felt clothed. They lived in this peaceful, perfect relationship with the Father, dependent on God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit after <clears throat> They were in harmony with each other. And so in a sense, they were clothed spiritually. They were, they were safe. And they were properly adorned with spiritual garments of a right relationship with God and with one another. But in their sin, all that gets removed. And now they realize, in and of themselves, they are so vulnerable and exposed and dirty because of their sin. And so the desire to cover up here had to do with with the shame of, of their abject poverty, their exposure, their loss of dignity in, in their broken relationship with God. And clothing speaks to all those things. So here what I am saying, we are made to be adorned, not naked. But this is in the storyline where, where their, their, their lostness, their vulnerability, uh, their, their abject poverty apart from God is, is made clear. And so they seek to hide themselves later. They lost all those things and they were exposed. And God provides for them in chapter 3. He provides coverings for them in chapter 3. And this is, as we draw to a close, I think an important point to make. In chapter 3, verse 21, it says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, Clothe them. God himself, the Lord God, the the covenant God, the covenant maker and keeper, the only one, made himself for Adam and his wife garments of skin, skins, and clothed them. And up till that point there had been no sacrificing of animals that went on in the story, no need for such a thing. But all of a sudden, Yahweh God Himself is covering Adam and Eve and their shame with the skins of dead animals, animals that were put to death. What can that mean? Well, as we read the whole storyline, we know what it means. First, it expresses what our covenant-keeping God is like. He's a God of mercy. He had told them, if you, if you do this, you will die. And He could have put them to death both spiritually and physically immediately. They experienced immediate spiritual death. But they were not put to death. God had mercy. But He didn't just refrain from putting them to death. He provided covering for them with skins, with other animals that died in their place so that they could be covered. Fast forward thousands of years and we see the fulfillment of this. Not in animals substituting themselves for the sins of man or woman, but God Himself taking on flesh and dying in our place, substituting Himself for our sins to cover our sin, to cover our shameful nakedness in our vulnerability, in our sinfulness and separation from God. God himself provides, as it says in Galatians 3:13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ was hanged on a tree on the cross to receive the curse we deserve for our sin, to substitute for us and to cover us with His righteousness. Amazing! Amazing! What an amazing book we have. Here in the beginning, these truths taught and truth implied with it and then fulfilled in Christ for all of us. And so I want to finish here because we've been hearing about this call to, to the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of, of maleness and femaleness and God's design as this complementary pair. But I don't want us to look to ourselves in this. I don't want us to, to think that we can somehow pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and do this. I don't want us to, to hear the, the high calling here without the reality of our desperate need. We are sinful human beings who have fallen and we struggle with these things. All of us are confused. All of us have disobeyed in some way here. And our hope is in not ourselves and merely seeing that it's true or merely seeing that it's good and beautiful. Our hope must be in the only substitute and Savior and King who can rescue us and lead us. He sacrificed Himself to pay for our sins in this category and others fully. He provided His righteousness to clothe us with dignity and honor. He provides the power to transform us, to live out our masculinity or femininity appropriately. And So I want to finish before we transition just with the call to take a minute and say, ask Him to help you. To say thank you for what you've done and ask Him to help you. Let's put our hope in Jesus and all these things. Let us hear the call to that which is true, good, and glorious. But let us look Jesus. Let's take a man to look to Jesus and Pastor Toby will come up to lead us in communion.